and amen. You ready to enjoy the word? Let's get into that. If you'll take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Galatians in the New Testament and chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 is where we're going to land. And uh, if you need a Bible this morning, you can just raise your hand. We'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you if you got away without that today. And if you don't own a Bible, then keep this one. Let it be a gift from our church family to you. We want you to have the living Word of God to hold in your hands. There's a little note page in your bulletin. Uh, Grab that out, too, if you wouldn't mind. It'll be helpful along the way. And church family, today we return to our verse-by-verse explore of the book of Galatians. We took last week off to celebrate moms, which was a great day. But we're back today and back to the book that is determined to drive home to our hearts the single most important truth, the never-to-be-tampered-with, never-to-be-changed, all-encompassing, life-impacting, eternity-impacting truth that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen? Amen. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That is the book of Galatians in an equation. Galatians is the letter that the Holy Spirit wrote through the pen of the Apostle Paul to ensure that there would never be any doubt, never be any confusion about the true gospel that saves sinners from an eternity separated from God and brings them into a personal relationship with him forever. No doubt about the gospel, the true gospel. That is what the book of Galatians is about. The gospel. What is the gospel? Well, we've, we've kind of come to this definition over the course of the last few weeks. The, go- the gospel is who Jesus is and what he has done appropriated into our lives by grace through faith. Jesus, eternal, holy, sinless, sovereign God, clothed in human flesh. What has he done? Well, he has come into our sinful world, into your world and mine, died on a cross, paid the debt that we could never pay. He assumes the penalty of of death and, and, and separation from God upon himself so that we will never have to experience that. He dies for us. He rises from the dead, defeating sin's power and its penalty as well as the grave. God forgives us of our sin debt because Jesus paid it all, yes, by his grace. We sang that a moment ago. And he gives us his word and he gives us his spirit to live inside of us promising us life now that is fulfilling and meaningful and purposeful, has a direction, and promising us to give us heaven as our eternal home. And we say amen and amen to that. We appropriate all of that truth into our lives by grace, not because we deserve it, not because we've merited or somehow God owes us, but simply because he wants to lavish his love on us in a personal relationship. We appropriate all of that into our lives by grace through faith. Simple, childlike trust in Jesus. Who he is and what he's done. That is the gospel. And Paul takes this. This most important truth in the universe. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He takes this truth into the region of southern Turkey. In about the year 48 AD. A place called Galatia in his day, 
And he takes this message of truth to the non-Jewish Gentile population in several key cities there. And the people eagerly respond to the gospel of Jesus. The result of this outpouring of grace is that several churches are born in this region. People come to faith in the city of Perga, Derby, Lystra, Iconium. They enter into a grace alone by faith alone in Jesus alone relationship with God. Just like you. Just like me. And we'd love to say at this point that they lived happily ever after. But sadly, it just isn't so. And the reason why it isn't so is because false teachers, we now know them to be called Judaizers, who probably have come from Jerusalem. They have slipped in behind Paul after he returned back to his home church in Antioch. And they search out these new churches and these new believers in Christ. And they start teaching, they start promoting another gospel. There's really only one gospel. It's the true gospel. But they come in and they start sowing another message. Instead of Jesus plus nothing equals everything, they declare, no, no, no. The true gospel is Jesus plus other things equals everything. The Judaizers claimed to believe in the truth that Jesus saves, recognized him as Messiah, agreed that his death on the cross had value, But then the Judaizers go on to to say to these new Galatian believers, if you're going to become truly saved, a, a real saved person in relationship with God, then you must devote yourself as well to the rules and the customs and the traditions of Judaism. Not just Jesus. But Judaism, you can you can follow Jesus. You need to follow Jesus. But but you better do the Jewish ceremonies, observe the Jewish holy days and holidays. And you Gentile Jewish men, you better get circumcised like the Jewish men are circumcised as a sign of being set apart to God. If you really want salvation, if you really want to be saved, Jesus plus other things equals everything. The Judaizers were seeking literally to rewrite the definition of the true gospel, the nature of the true gospel. They were wanting to replace the grace of God with the legalism of their own performance and effort as a way of being saved. I will have a part in my salvation. I will will add to what Jesus has done and be saved. That was the message. And legalism happens every time what we need to do and not what jesus has already done becomes the main thing right that's when legalism happens when what i need to do becomes more than what jesus did it's like adding to niagara falls by spitting into it you think you've made a contribution right i mean that's how absurd this is that you and i could add anything to jesus and his saving work. But that was the message of the Judaizers. And the moment anyone adds any other requirement to the work of Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection, well, as the grounds for being loved and accepted by God, in that moment we've, ex- we've abandoned the true gospel, right? And that's what's happened among the, Gentile, uh, the, the, the Galatian believers. The Judaizers are, are making dangerous inroads into these Christians' lives and 
distorting the true gospel and taking them from living in the free air of grace and trying to enslave them in the works-saturated air of of rule-keeping, lifeless rule-keeping. And so Paul, realizing this, is led by the Spirit of God to pen this letter that you hold in your lap right now. He cuts immediately to the chase, saying to them in verse 6 of chapter 1, if you look at your Bible, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I'm amazed, he says. I'm bewildered. I'm astounded. I'm blown away. He could hardly comprehend that the Galatian believers were already within less than a year of him having been with them, so quickly, he says, abandoning the gospel that they had been given. Verse 7. Not that there is another gospel, but, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Let him be accursed. What did we learn about that word last time? It means to be hell bound, doesn't it? Yeah, Paul was literally saying, let the one who would preach a false gospel to you, bring a false message of salvation to you, let that person be hell bound. We never hear Paul get more amped up than he is right here in this moment. Everything about true salvation is at stake. Verse 9. Just in case you missed it, let me say it one more time. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be what? Accursed, hellbound. Oh, fellow lover of Jesus, would that we would get as amped up about the gospel as Paul is, right? That we would be that passionate for the true gospel. Now, The only way that the Galatians could be so quickly deceived by the Judaizers and their false gospel was if these false teachers could effectively undermine Paul's credibility, his authority as a messenger, as a mouthpiece for Jesus. If they could discredit him in the eyes of these new believers, then then their, their false gospel would have a chance. And this is is exactly how it turns out. The Judaizers, they they carry a false gospel, but boy, can they package it really well. They do a masterful job of trashing Paul's credibility. They spread the idea that Paul's not a legitimate apostle. He's not one of the 12 that were with Jesus. They accuse him of being self-appointed, not God-appointed, not Jesus-called. They cast doubts about Paul's motives, saying he's, he's all about himself. He's all about um, pleasing people and, and elevating himself and building up a personal name and, and gathering a following around himself. They charge him with tossing aside centuries of God-given directives that were entrusted to Moses and then to the Jewish people, the, the rituals, the customs, the traditions, the practices that were sacred to the Jewish people. Paul just, he just blows away all that stuff. He doesn't care about what God has said in the past, they say. They say Paul does this in order to make the gospel more appealing to the Gentile. They don't have to go through all the Jewish stuff. And, and Paul's just making it easier. 
And, and he say even that the, that the Jews themselves find it more appealing because oh, all the rigorous requirements of the law are taken away. And, and so the Judaizers are just ruthless in these accusations. And sadly, the Galatian Christians are being taken in by these convincing lies. It had to have hurt Paul deeply to learn that many of his friends, his new brothers and sisters in the faith, had been persuaded by these false teachers to to question his motives, his authority, to doubt the message of Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so he's keenly aware of all of this, and he knows that if he's going to safely steer this, this sinking ship into the safe harbor once again of the true gospel, then he has to respond to these attacks, to his authority, to his credibility. Unless he answers these charges, these baby Christians will continue to, to plod confusingly down this dangerous road of, of enslavement to rules instead of living in the freedom of Jesus Christ. So beginning in verse 10 and continuing all the way into chapter 2, verse 10, Paul, under the directing hand of the Holy Spirit, is compelled to defend his ministry and reclaim the ground, if you will, of credibility that the Judaizers have stolen from him with all of their lies. Again, if Paul doesn't do this, the Galatians continue to view Paul with suspicion. They'll be reluctant to pour themselves into the true gospel of Jesus plus nothing. As you see there on your note page then, Paul will remind his Galatian friends of four things in this section from 1.10 to 2.10. He's going to remind them that he's not a people pleaser at all, as they accuse him of being. Then he's going to remind them that the true gospel came straight from Jesus to him. He didn't get it from anybody else. Third, he's going to remind them that his own life itself is proof of the power of the true gospel. His life does a 180, and we get to talk about that today and look into that. And then he's going to tell them as well in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he's going to tell them something that they would not have known because he wasn't with, this, this happened after he was with them. He's going to tell them that even the apostles in Jerusalem have fully released him to preach the true gospel that he gave to them. And he'll get into that a little bit more. And as Paul defends himself in these four ways, we, for our part, are going to learn some new things about the gospel itself as well. So let's join Paul as he first answers the charge that he is all about being a people pleaser and promoting his own cause. He's giving this message to make himself popular, build himself up, and gather a following. He says in verse 10 of chapter 1, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he's responding to this first charge. Let's let's not miss that little word still there in verse 10. If I were still trying to please man. Now what does that imply, brothers and sisters? He, He used to be doing that, right? That's exactly right. There was a time when Paul was into what others thought about him. He cared a great deal about where he fell out in the pecking order of of esteemed, respected, popular religious leaders. That was a big deal to him. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be following Jesus. 
But there was a time. That was before he encountered Christ. And what he says that now is, man, if I wanted to be popular, I sure wouldn't throw in with Jesus. I wouldn't be a servant in his cause. That's not how you do it. He had surrendered his life entirely to the lordship of Jesus. And that surrender had cost him dearly in human terms. At the end of this letter, if you flip over just to the end of this book, to chapter 6, Paul reminds the Galatians there in the next to the last verse, verse 17, that he bears on his body the what? The marks of Jesus. He bears on his body the marks of Jesus. Now, he doesn't do it here, but Paul could have reminded them that in Lystra, when he was in Lystra, one of the Galatian cities that he had preached Jesus in, and a church had been planted there, he reminds the, the, his readers that, that some of the townspeople, when he was preaching Jesus, became so angry with him that they took him outside of the town and they stoned him. And they left him for dead. They thought they had killed him. Suffering at the hands of people who were not pleased with Paul was common for him. He got this all the time. And, and it just comes with loving Jesus and proclaiming the true gospel. It comes at a price. Paul will write the Corinthian church later. Words that I think you've, you've heard before. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning of verse 24. We'll put them up on the screen for you. This is just Paul's story in a nutshell. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That was Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false prophet, uh, false brothers. Do you think Paul's in danger? In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Jesus. Is this not a poignant reminder that living and proclaiming the true gospel can really be costly? You know, in American culture, we, we, we don't really contend with that a lot. Not like, not, certainly not like this. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to do what? They're going to hate you too for loving me. In our culture, we don't experience a lot of that. But brothers and sisters around the world today, there are many who are experiencing the very things that Paul writes about from his own life. Paul would say, don't, don't sign up if, for the Christian life if you're looking for easy. Don't do it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything is costly. It can cost you your life. In fact, if you're still in chapter 6, Paul actually turns the tables on his accusers back up in verse 12, and he says this. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, to do Jesus plus other things, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The Judaizers are the ones who are pleasing people and looking for praise from men. 
Paul says, oh, dear Galatian brothers and sisters, one thing you can be sure that I am not is a people pleaser. May that be so for you and me today. May that be so for Idlewild Bible Church. Never motivated by the approval of others, but only by our love for Jesus and what He has done for us. Yes? Eager to hear, well done, good and faithful servant from the only one whose approval we really care about. Right? May that be our motive for ministry and service. Well, then Paul responds to a second charge, the charge that he didn't get his gospel from a reliable source. And again, remember, he has to respond to these accusations. So in verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, or if Paul were writing today, he would say, Let me make it perfectly clear, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel I preach, he says, is not human in nature, in origin, or in authority. I didn't invent it. I didn't alter it. I didn't get it from any man. Its message is completely divine, God-originating, without any mixture of human wisdom or insight thrown in for good measure. And that, by the way, is why the true gospel is the standard by which all other belief systems in the world must be measured. What is the source? What is the source? The true gospel comes straight from who? It comes from Jesus, doesn't it? It comes from Jesus to us, and, and there's no human contribution at all. That cannot be said of any other belief system in the world. Do you realize that? There isn't another belief system in the world that can make the claim that the true gospel makes. And so we measure every other belief system against this standard. Where's its source? It comes straight from Jesus. When Paul says, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, he was aiming that comment straight at the Judaizers because he knew their background. He had once been one of these guys. So he knew them very well. He knew what they were about. He knew that their teaching had come down to them from rabbis, religious teachers who had collected and assembled over many centuries religious traditions, scriptural interpretations that were shot through with human wisdom and man-made rules that were supposed to reflect a disciplined, devoted-to-God life that would impress God and, and then God would accept you because of what you did. I was one of those guys, Paul says. I I know where they got their material. What I passed on to you Galatians, I did not get from any rabbi or from any human source at all, but I received it through a what? A revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's choice of the word revelation, it is a precise word. It's the word, the Greek word, apocalypsis. Does that have a ring of familiarity to you? You bet it does. It's a word that means an unveiling of something previously secret, something that was not known before. It was quite a claim for Paul to make. The the gospel truth that I, I gave you by special revelation came directly from Jesus to me and from me to you. None of the Judaizers could, could say that they got their message straight from God. They got it from Rabbi so-and-so or Rabbi who's it or whatever. 
Paul is saying the true gospel is Jesus' gospel, and he gave it to you through me. Now, it is one thing to claim direct revelation from God, but, but can you back up the claim? Can you back it up? Let's be honest. Throughout the history of the church, many people have falsely claimed apocalypsis, right? Revelation from God. There are many who in our day say the very same thing. I received a word from God, right? But Paul is not content merely to make the claim, nor does he expect his readers to believe him simply on the basis of some personal, passionate assertion. And so for the next 12 verses now, Paul proceeds to tell how Jesus takes hold of his life, turns it upside down and inside out, and sets his life on a course that will send him 180 degrees in the opposite direction that he had been traveling before he met Jesus. And in the process of talking about that, he's going to share with us how Jesus personally gave him the true gospel. He invites the Galatians to review his amazing story where he was once a zealous Jew murdering Christians to becoming a transformed by Jesus preacher of the true gospel. Verse 13. For you have heard, which lets us know that the Galatians are familiar with Paul's conversion story, how he came to faith in Christ. They're familiar with it. They've heard it before. No doubt he had told them all about this when he was with them. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So he's painting a picture of his old life. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. We'll stop right there for a second. This is Paul's short version of his changed life in Christ. I'd like for us to have the long version. So in order for that to happen, keep your finger tucked here in Galatians and then run back to the left until you catch up with the book of Acts and find chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Join me there where we learn that before Paul was a champion of the gospel of Jesus, he was a killer of Christians. Verse 1. Most of us are familiar with Paul's conversion story, but some of us in the room might not be. It's an amazing story. Verse 1. But Saul, that's his Jewish name, but Paul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, anyone following Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. 
Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And let's just stop right there for a second. The story continues. But, but what we just read was Luke's third person account of Paul's conversion. I would love for you to hear it straight from his own lips. So for that to happen, leave Acts 9 and run to the right till you get to chapter 26. Find verse 9 of chapter 26. Let's get the first person account. Here's Paul speaking to, in defense of himself against a king. He's before King Agrippa. And we read this in verse 9. I myself, Paul says, was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. And I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. Boy, underline that. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want to stop right there for a second. I just want to jump in because I don't want us to miss this. Here is Jesus' question. This is Jesus' word. We see just how completely Jesus identifies with those who love him through this one statement that Jesus makes. What Paul is doing in the first century to these believers, Jesus says, you're doing it to me, Paul, to me. You're persecuting me as you imprison and as you kill and, and my followers. That, brothers and sisters, is how closely Jesus identifies with you. What happens to you happens to Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you think he feels that? You bet he feels that. He says, I feel that. Paul, you're, you're persecuting me when you do these things. And this helps explain why Paul is so, so amped up against the Judaizers who are threatening these Galatian believers. Their lie of a false gospel. Man, that, that's, that's trampling on the person of Jesus and his truth. And he wants to protect Jesus. We learned about this close connection of Jesus to his people here on the Damascus Road. Verse 15. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me right this moment and to those in which I will appear to you down the road delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, so to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Apart from any works, we might add, right? Jesus plus nothing. 
Paul says, this is what happened to me. I was, I was going this way, killing Jesus' lovers, and Jesus knocks me to the ground. He, he blinded me for a time, and he said, stop fighting against me and go with me. My life literally did a 180, Paul says. The gospel I gave to you, Galatian believers, I got from Jesus. No human invention, no other person, no apostle handed it down to me. Jesus, by way of a supernatural revelation, revealed himself and his his gospel to me. That's where I got it. Now, if we return to Galatians 1, which I invite you to do with me now, Paul shares even more of his story. Because the Galatians know this part of the story. And the Damascus Road, we know from, on the Damascus Road, we know from Acts 9 that, that after that, Paul spent a short time, a very short time in Damascus. And then he starts to preach Jesus in Damascus. But this causes the hunter to become the hunted, doesn't it? Zealous Jews in Damascus want to kill him for turning from Judaism to Jesus. And so, yes, we're told in Acts 9, has to sneak out of town under the cover of darkness. Verse 17. Now I would have you know that I did not go up to Jerusalem after leaving Damascus to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. Now, this is an important statement. Through this mention of Arabia, Though it is very brief, most Bible scholars believe that by piecing together other statements that Paul makes here, that his going away into Arabia was actually a three-year period of time in which Jesus personally tutors him in this, this place, a three-year private discipleship course, if you will, in order to prepare Paul for his ministry to the Gentiles, just like Jesus had prepared the disciples for three years, the 12 that he had with him. So it's very interesting, three-year period of time. Then Paul says this, I returned again to Damascus, and then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him for 15 days. The word Paul uses for visit here in this verse means to get acquainted with. It doesn't mean in order to be taught by Paul or by Peter, or to be instructed by him, or trained by him. He just goes up to Jerusalem to meet Peter and become acquainted. Fifteen days, no more. Verse 19, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Paul's whole point is this. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to get the gospel that I gave you. I got it from Jesus. And this is how it all unfolded. And Paul gives us these details, brothers and sisters, because details validate. He gives us the particulars of his story because details validate. You know, if a jury hears from a witness that the accused left the scene of a crime somewhere between 7 o'clock and 10 o'clock at night, that's not going to carry nearly as much weight as if a witness says, the accused left at 9.56, and this is how I know that. Much more powerful if you give the detail. And Paul does that in these verses. Verse 21. Then I left Peter in Jerusalem after 15 days, and I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. In other words, he says, I went back to my home in Tarsus, 
back to my adopted town of Antioch. Verse 22, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. They knew my former life. And now they know what Jesus has done. This 180 has occurred and they're glorifying God. Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus, his acceptance of the true gospel, transforms his life. Takes his former life, remember that, verse 13, takes his former life and turns it 180 degrees around. Changes him from Paul the persecutor, Paul the Christian killer, to Paul the preacher, to Gentiles, the proclaimer of the one true gospel. And that's what Jesus always does. When we discover what he's done for us, we realize that he changes us from, as the song said earlier, from the inside out, right? From the inside out. That's the true gospel. Well, Lastly, Paul recovers the ground of credibility that the Judaizers have undermined, not just by, by pointing out that he's not a people-pleasing self-promoter, nor that he's gotten a message that's unreliable in its source, and, 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 he's, and he's got a life that's been transformed by the power of the gospel. But he, want, he goes on to say now, there's one more thing, and this you don't know because it happened after I was with you. What we know, because we have Luke's record in Acts, is that after Paul and Barnabas left Galatia, they return to their home church in Antioch. They share all that God has done in this, this part of the world amongst these people. Then the Judaizers slip in behind and they try to undo what God has done. And so bold are these Judaizers that they actually go to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas are. And here's what we read in Acts chapter 15. We won't ask you to turn there. We'll put it up on the screen for you, though. Luke says, some men came down from Judea, from Jerusalem, actually, to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. What is that gospel? What is that false gospel? Jesus plus other things equals everything. That's what they're teaching. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute boy i'll say and debate with them so paul and barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question is it jesus plus other things or is it jesus plus nothing and so we read verse one chapter two of galatians then after 14 years and again paul's given verifiable details here Fourteen years after my get acquainted with Peter visit, I went back up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, Titus is a non-Jewish man who may have come to faith in Jesus through Paul's ministry. I went up because of a revelation. God told me to go up. I didn't need to go up in order to have the gospel confirmed, but I was told by God to go up. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, that is through the the apostles in Jerusalem, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. In order to make sure, Paul says, that I was not running or had run in vain, 
Verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, into a works-based, rule-keeping relationship with God. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Circle that. Highlight that in your Bible because you want to know that. Added nothing. In other words, the apostles who had been with Jesus for three years from the very beginning, they heard what I was proclaiming and they didn't add a single thing to the message. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jews... For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the Jews worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellow, gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. They didn't ask me to change the message. It's the same message Jesus gave. Nothing but Jesus equals everything. So, so Paul is saying to the Galatian believers, the only thing the respected apostles in Jerusalem asked of us is that we take the name of Jesus into the Gentile world wherever we could, wherever the Spirit led us to go, and remember the poor back in Jerusalem. Just remember them as you have opportunity. But the true gospel, the one that Barnabas and I gave to you, it didn't get modified, it didn't get changed, and it definitely wasn't added to. It was confirmed. Now, again, Paul did not need for the Jerusalem decision to happen in order for him to go forward, but it was helpful. Will it silence the Judaizers, do you think? Will it shut them down? Will it, will it cause them to go away? Absolutely not. Later in Acts chapter 15, we're told they ignore all of this and continue to try to undo the grace gospel and replace it with a works message. Does Paul recover the trust of the Galatians after this fourfold argument and, 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 and attempt at recovering the ground? Does he recover that? Does he reestablish his credibility among them? Well, only time will tell. We'll have to find out together about that. But this defense, brothers and sisters, reminds us of these things again. The true gospel, though it is glorious, is not easy, right? It's not an easy thing. It costs to follow Jesus. It is not for people pleasers. We learn that here. We're reminded that Paul's message is really Jesus' message. It's what he wants you and me to know. It's what Jesus wants us to know. And we're reminded how an encounter with the risen Jesus and the embrace of the true gospel in your heart transforms your life. The true gospel took Paul's former life and turned it 180 degrees around, changed it from Paul the persecutor, Paul the Christian killer, 
into Paul the Apostle, Paul the Preacher of Jesus plus nothing. So hear this. Especially if you're here today and you might be thinking in the back of your mind or maybe in the front of your mind, there's no way that God or Jesus would ever, could ever want a person like me. Not after all that I have been. Not after all that I have done. There is no way that God would ever want sinful me. If you're thinking that this morning, this whole message is for you. Hear this. The power of the true gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done, not what you do, appropriated into your life by grace through faith, that transforms Listen to me. It transforms your current life no matter what it looks like in this moment. The true gospel transforms your current life into your former life. Right? Isn't that it? Your current life will become your former life through the forgiveness that is found in Jesus plus nothing. Before Paul met Jesus, his life was a train wreck of misdirected passions, convictions, and beliefs. His catalog of bad deeds would easily eclipse anything that anybody in this room has done. Truly. What does he say? Verse 13 again. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Have you done that? I don't think so. But after Jesus broke into his life, he was a changed man. And if Jesus can change a guy like Paul, he can change you, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. He's brand new. The old is gone. The new has come. Amen? That's the true gospel expressed in just another way. That's Jesus plus nothing equals everything, right? Your current life can become your former life your faith in Jesus. And we have that message. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us these moments in your word. It's been a trek this morning, challenging to stay connected to it all the time. But I pray, Father, that this morning, if there is even one person in this room who has thought that you would never want them that they would not leave this room this morning without knowing that you died for them, that you purchased heaven for them, that you've done it all so that they don't have to do anything but love you through faith in Jesus. Help us to help such persons in our midst and in our town, because there are many in our town who would feel this very way. God would never want me, not after what I've done. But you do, because that's who you are. And you've made the way through the true gospel of Jesus plus nothing. We say thank you. We celebrate you. We love you. But only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, Amen Amen and Amen.